Well, we are continuing um, this series on the most misused verses in the Bible. It's been a good series. I've only been to a couple of them and seen uh, online as well. Really good series. And uh, the verse that we're looking at this evening is one of the favorite verses uh, that Christians love to quote. You'll find this verse on mugs and t-shirts everywhere. Uh, We like to quote this. It is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It was in July 2009 that the cover of Sports Illustrated uh, featured a rather arresting photograph of a young man, familiar to many, I'm sure, known as Tim Tebow. And the headline of Sports Illustrated uh, was Tim Tebow, man of many missions. And it talked about how this uh, champion quarterback, and I'm trying to talk about this like I know something about it, but you know I'm bluffing when I, when I, I do that, but how his uh, faith uh, is clearly and securely in Jesus. And um, in, in sharing this illustration, by the way, tonight, no criticism of Tim Tebow at all, because he was wanting to express his faith in, in the most obvious way that he could think of. But the arresting photograph Uh, included him having written um, in whatever that stuff is they put under their eyes. As you can see, I'm a great expert in this. It was Philippians Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's one of the most frequently quoted verses uh, in the Bible. Um, It's often found uh, taped on the ceiling over bench presses in weight rooms. Um, uh, golfers are often heard to mutter this. I have never experienced that myself, as you probably heard me say, I, I'm a horrible golfer. I don't have a swing, it's a spasm. So um, it's not likely to happen to me. In Christian school gymnasiums, uh, you often see this text I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and the idea that is permeated by this is when something seems difficult or when something seems out of our comfort zone or even our skill set, well, we just bring out this verse and we say, well, I can, I can do it. I can do it because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, tragically, uh, in so doing, often what happens is we wrench the verse out of its context and try and make it say something that it's not saying. So what I want us to just do for a few moments is is have a look at this particular verse and then a couple of other passages as well uh, as we think about this tonight. Philippians 4, uh, 12 to 13, in the New King James Version, Paul says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And it's then that he says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then uh, Matthew 14 and verse 25, a very familiar story. At about four o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. They were scared out of their wits. A ghost, they cried, crying out in terror. But Jesus was quick to comfort them. Courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Peter, suddenly bold, said, Master, if it's really you, Call me to come to you on the water. He said, come ahead. Jumping out of the boat, Peter walked on the water to Jesus. 
And then the third text I want us to look at is Romans chapter 12 and verse 5 from the message version. So since we find ourselves fashioned into all of these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. If you preach, just preach God's message, nothing else. If you help, just help. Don't take over. If you teach, stick to your teaching. Uh, as a singer, this particular lady that I want to refer you to was a phenomenal success. She packed out New York's uh, prestigious Carnegie Hall. She was a chart topper for her uh, record label, uh, the best-selling artist. She worked very hard at her success. She even hired a very renowned vocal coach to help her with her technique. And her friends and family cheered her on, uh, celebrating her unique gift. Uh, there was just one particular problem here, and that is uh, she couldn't sing. She couldn't sing. She was the subject of a recent Oscar-nominated uh, movie starring Meryl Streep and Hugh Grant. Uh, Florence Foster Jenkins was, according to the historian Stephen Powell, the world's worst opera singer. Uh, here's a picture of her. There's uh, Florence. This is a real story. It's not just something that's made up and comes out of Hollywood. Stephen Powell went further. He said, no one before or since has succeeded in liberating themselves quite so completely from the shackles of musical notation. That is really beautifully put, isn't it? Um, but basically, uh, this dear lady, oblivious to the fact that her audience gathered to quietly mock her, she was consistently flat, sometimes off-key by as much as a semitone. Uh, she had poor diction and she murdered, she massacred foreign language uh, lyrics. But even as her fans snickered behind their hands, um, she just kept on singing. And I thought it would be kind of fun tonight, because I believe in fun, how about you, for us to enjoy some of that talent as some of you are looking at me really nervously like I'm going to sing. And fear not, little flock, that's not going to happen. But here's Meryl Streep's uh, rendition of uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. Let's, let's take a look.
the clip goes on, but I just can't subject you to any more um, of that. Hugh Grant um, and ladies, try and refocus if you can. That would be that would be helpful. But Hugh Grant in the movie plays her husband, who in in real life just cheered her on and said she was the greatest. And I'll tell you the postscript of the story. She thought she could sing. And she rented Carnegie Hall to display her talents. But she couldn't sing at all. And there are recordings available on the internet of the real lady. And Meryl Streep has done an amazing job in, in capturing what went on. It said that Walt Disney said that if you can dream it, you can do it. Actually, Disney didn't say that. It was one of his employees. But I'm really sorry to break the news. It's not true. If you can dream it, you can do it. It isn't true. Self-help author Napoleon Hill. It was he who was said to have come up with the phrase, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve. And it sounds kind of snappy and good, doesn't it? And, it? and it's the stuff of high school graduations everywhere. But here's a really serious question. Is it possible that sometimes in making these statements, which are not true, that we actually commission young people with lies and set them up for disappointment? David McCullough, an English school teacher, uh, told graduating students in Wellesley High School in Massachusetts, he said, you are not special. You are not exceptional. And his speech went viral because people sighed a sigh of relief, embracing the fact that actually living the ordinary life can be beautiful too. That not everyone is set up for some kind of big, spectacular success. Carl Worley is, is uh, even more blunt. I think we got his quote uh, for the screen for you. Growing up in America, children consistently hear that they can be anything they want to be. This promise is usually accompanied by thoughts of grandeur and extraordinary, extraordinary success. And our ambitions and hopes are educated on the premise that to settle for the ordinary which is often equated with what is boring and indicative of a past and inferior time, is beneath us. This hope of becoming something extraordinary trickles down from the rafters of our dreams where we dwelt as children into the basement of our hearts, where adults go to think about what could have been and prepare a path to projecting their fallen dreams onto their so-called fallen children. If you can dream it, you can do it. It isn't true. We're going to examine this verse carefully in a few moments. As we do so, let me remind you that as we see Peter striding across the waves, we realize that the other disciples did not get out of the boat and were not invited to do so. And this stuff is really important because, you see, James and John are in that boat and they're the sons of thunder, they're impetuous, they're enthusiastic. But they were not invited to do the same exploit that Peter tried. And if we don't get this right, just as Florence's reputation suffered, and now there is a film that describes the tragedy. So if we're not careful, if we don't get this right, we can actually sully the reputation in the name of God if we don't truthfully understand 
the truth of Scripture. So, so let's, let's dive in here and, and think about this. Number one in your uh, program, and that I think there are nine or ten points, which is causing some nervousness among some of you. Uh, but don't worry, because we're going to just hit them very, very quickly. Number one, know that you can't do everything. You can't do everything. And again, I hear someone immediately coming back and saying, but no, the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, I can't do everything. I can't fly without tickets. I can't give birth to twins. And I can't play the bassoon or currently speak Cantonese. And so the very idea that if I just say I can do everything through Jesus, philosophically, practically, it doesn't make any sense, does it? What we've got to do is look at the context of this scripture. There's, a, there's an old hermeneutical saying uh, when it comes to applying the words of the Bible, and it's simply this. If you take a text out of context, you create a pretext. If you take a text out of context, you create a pretext. And so when we just lift verses like this out of context, it's no wonder that we build bad ideas upon them. And it's really easy, as Pastor Brent has been demonstrating, looking at the misuse of various scriptures, it's really easy to do that with the Bible. Uh, let me just grab a few out of context. Just to Let me just preach a bit of heresy for a, a few moments here. First of all, there's the doctrine that none of us should work. None of us, we should all give up working tonight. Uh, some of you were writing that down. This, uh, it's, a, it's a heresy I'm using to illustrate. And you say, where's the biblical basis for that? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 28, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Just wrench the scripture out of context, and now we have a doctrine that says you don't have to work. Uh, here's another one uh, on the other side of it. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Oh, that's, this is why we should ignore the poor, everybody. This is why we should do nothing for those who are in need, because the Bible says if they don't work, they don't eat. Now, again, don't write that down as a truth. I'm getting a little worried here. It's an error created on an out-of-context treatment of Scripture. Here's another one. We should never, ever go to prayer meetings. We've got this 24 prayer meeting coming up. You should not attend any public prayer gatherings. Why? Well, Matthew 6, verse 6 says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Obviously, Jesus doesn't want us to get together to pray, but obviously that's not true, is it? What I've done is I've wrenched the Scripture out of context. So what is the context of Paul's comment uh, here? Well, let's look at it. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Oh, now I get it. Paul is not saying I'm some kind of superhuman and I can, just, I can just summon up whatever powers I need for whatever exploits I need to perform. What he's rather saying is he's describing his contrasting circumstances. And then he's saying, but I can live contentedly in these changing circumstances because God will strengthen me. And actually he's... Um, in addressing his audience like he is, he's actually quoting 
a, a, a Stoic idea that was in, very strong at the time about contentment. Uh, Stoicism was about being contented, whatever circumstances you find yourself in. But the Apostle Paul is taking that statement and then giving it new application because he says, I can do, I can do all these things, I can live in these circumstances, but my source, my power for doing that is Christ who strengthens me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression, he translates this verse, I am strong for all things in the one who constantly infuses strength into me. So the idea that this is just saying, if I can dream it, I can do it, is not only ridiculous because of the context, but it's also absurd because of the circumstances, because Paul was under house arrest in Rome when he wrote these words. So he's a prisoner. So the idea of wrenching this verse and making it into if you can dream it, you can do it, is absolutely ludicrous. Because if that were true, he'd be dreaming of freedom and getting out of jail free. It is Christ who strengthens me for my circumstances. If you're not convinced, let's go over to Peter walking on the water. Has anybody here ever tried to walk on water? Anyone here? I've tried it, and it failed dismally. Um, I was at a hotel where the swimming pool was deserted, and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. I put my swimsuit on first because faith without works is dead. You know, you have to, you have to do the practical thing. And I put my foot on the water, and I, I sank. It was a dismal failure. I want you to notice something about the walking on water episode. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, would you bid me come? Now, it was Peter's idea. It's interesting to note, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, it's off the subject, but Jesus sometimes performed miracles at the suggestion of others, including his first one at Cana. That was his mother's idea. But Peter suggests it, but it's only when Jesus says, okay, let's do it, it's only then that he tries to then walk on water and partially succeeds. In other words... Christ will strengthen us in our various circumstances and he will equip us for that which he is calling us to. Master, if it's you, bid me come. If we don't get that, then what will happen is we'll end up doing what we've never been shaped to do. In literature, Macbeth was a successful military commander but became an incompetent king. Socrates was a wonderful teacher, but he became a defense attorney, and he was horrible at that. And, and listen, I've been a pastor for too many years, more years than I can remember, and I've seen this happening in church life, people deciding that they've got a gift that they haven't got. You know, and they, they I remember in a church that I pastored right at the beginning, and it was quite a small church, and and, you know, the person comes to me and, and says, uh, the Lord gave me a song last night, in the night, and I'd like to share it with the congregation. And I can remember the fear and trembling that I felt. And I was quite right in my anxiety, because when they sang the 27 horrible verses, it was clear that if the Lord did give them that song, he probably didn't actually want it in the first place. It was really absolutely horrendous. So let's get out of this idea that I can do all things means we can do anything. We cannot do everything. Secondly, 
When we're considering our talents and our gifts, secondly, know that true calling produces fruit. True calling produces fruit. If we really have got a talent in that area, there will be a sense of agreement with that sense that we have uh, about having that talent. And I also want to suggest that very often what happens in our lives is that God begins to shape talents in us at a very early age. And we might not even be aware of those things. Uh, and we, we might start to discover that there's something that we just love to do. When I first became a Christian, they said, they, did any of you hear this kind of thing? They said, you know what you're called to do is what you don't want to do. Well, that was terrible advice. What I've discovered is that my calling has been worked out in doing what I actually love to do. And before I ever became a Christian and before I ever wrote a book, Mr. Ruff, my brilliant English teacher, pointed at me one day in the class and said, you're good with words, Lucas, which was wonderful news because I was rubbish at math and terrible at chemistry because I didn't like the chemistry teacher because he blew his head up in a, an experiment which didn't inspire me with great confidence and, and terrible in physics and rubbish at many subjects, but I could write. I wasn't a Christian at that point. But something was being formed in me. And I joined the debating society because I loved to, to communicate. And what I didn't realize is that even before I came to Jesus, things were being formed in me and fruit was coming and others were endorsing that fruit. So true calling produces fruit. Number three. Number three, be sober in self-assessment of your gifts. Be sober in self-assessment. You can't do everything. Look at what Romans 12, 3 says. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Uh, we haven't got time to really unpack those words, but one, one Greek expositor basically says you can translate this like as simply as this. Know your limits. Know your limits. Know what you can do and know what you can't do. I haven't got time to apply this from my own experience, but just let me tell you that over the years, I could have saved myself and my wife a whole lot of grief if I had known what I shouldn't get involved with and stuck with what I should. A sober assessment is important. Number four, I told you we'd be pretty quick moving through these. Number four, know the difference between a comfort zone and a sphere. Know the difference between a comfort zone and a sphere. All of us have comfort zones. And there are times in our lives when God calls us to step out in faith and step out of those comfort zones. But there's a difference between a comfort zone and a sphere of calling and talent. Let me give you an example from the Bible. When the 5,000, and it was 5,000 men plus women and children... Uh, when the 5,000 needed to be fed, do you notice that Jesus invited his disciples to step out of their comfort zone? Because he says, you give them something to eat. He's inviting them to apply supernatural power to a difficult situation, a step of faith. That's stepping out of a comfort zone. But how many know that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter whipped out his sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, 
Peter was not stepping out of a comfort zone. He was stepping out of his sphere. He was becoming a military man rather than at that time simply called to be a disciple and friend of Jesus. And when Peter tried to tell Jesus to not go to Jerusalem and you can't go to the cross, that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because Peter is stepping out of his sphere and becoming an advisor rather than a learner in that context. Know the difference between a comfort zone and a sphere. Number five. Number five, if you've got a ministry that God has given you, don't be territorial about it. Don't be territorial about it. When I spent uh, 11 years back in a church in the UK, uh, we had a lot of people who really wanted to be on the worship team. Here's how we found out if they should be on the worship team. And it wasn't just about their skill set. What we did is we would sometimes just say, we don't want you to play at all for the next month. We want to give somebody else the opportunity. We'd like you to step aside. And it's not your ministry or our ministry. It's our ministry together. And those who held on tight and said, you touch of the keyboard, I break you your face. Those were the ones where we had to question what was really going on. When you develop any kind of gift or ministry, don't be territorial about it. Number six, nurture truth-telling relationships. Nurture truth-telling relationships in this context. If you're going to do what God has called you to do and not what you're not called to do. Some of you will be surprised to know that years ago, I used to be a worship leader. There are photographs on Facebook of me, first of all with hair, instead of this shrinking peninsula. And I've got a guitar, and there's a photograph on Facebook of me leading worship at a conference with a couple of thousand people. And back then, some of you will remember this, a man called Jack Hayford wrote a beautiful worship song called Majesty. Does anyone remember that song? Well, it, it, it went around the world. It was a beautiful song. And I led the singing of Majesty with Jack Hayford, who wrote the song, who was the preacher that day, standing right there, probably with his teeth gritted as I annihilated his song. I don't know why they ever allowed me to get up and do this. One day, a faithful friend came to me and said, Jeff, the body of Christ would sigh a collective sigh of relief if you would just pack your guitar away. I didn't want to hear that. But I heard it, and I did it, and I focused on what I felt called and equipped to do rather than what I wanted to do. And in that context, actually, the desire to preach and teach grew stronger. We need people around us to tell us the truth. Give people permission to say to you, if you ask them, Can I, do you think I've got a talent in this area? Do you think I've got a gift in this area? Give them permission to say, you're out of your mind. This is a bad idea. It's really difficult in, in this culture because the ultimate blasphemy is to offend someone. We don't want to offend anybody. But I want friends around me, and I have them, to whom I can say, tell me what you really think. Is this mad? And I don't just give them permission to tell me what they think. I am begging them for that honest input. Nurture truth-telling relationships. Number seven. 
Number seven, listen discerningly to your critics. If people say something negative to you about your gifts or talents or what you're doing, don't dismiss them. Again, can I give another, another personal example? As a young pastor, we had a, a lady in our church. She came to Christ, and um, she came to me one day, and she said, how come, how come it's only men who serve communion in this church? And how come it's only men who preach? And how come it's only men who pretty much do anything? Now, at that stage in my ministry, that's the way it was because that's the package that had been handed to me. It didn't occur to me that I was being very prejudiced and dismissive of half of our congregation and not releasing the women into their gifts. But here's what I'm ashamed to tell you. I began to say to the deacons, she's a bit of a troublemaker, that lady. She's been complaining again. And I'm glad to tell you that some years later, years later, I was able to go back to her because she's in, the church, in one of the churches I go back to in the UK. Her name is Trish and apologized to her because I was uncomfortable with her constructive criticism, so I wrote her off. Don't do that with people. Be discerning about who you listen to, but listen to your critics. Number eight, and I'm going to just say a sentence or two about this because time has gone. Don't drag others into your dreams. Don't drag others into your dreams. There's nothing worse than inflicting a gift that is not there. I was tempted to let Florence, I had like four minutes of Florence, and if you're, if you're really bad, I might play it at the end just to make you suffer before you go out. But it's pretty obvious that there's an inflicting of a gift. And again, it happens in church life. Don't drag others into your dreams. Number nine, check the motives behind your aspirations. Check the motives behind your aspirations. Let me make a statement that might seem a bit surprising. Ambition is not wrong. It's not wrong to be ambitious. It's not wrong to be ambitious to serve in, in some kind of ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And that means to set your heart upon something. That aspiration, that desire, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And actually, a friend of mine who's just recently, actually a few years ago, went to Buckingham Palace and received an award from the Queen uh, for his service to the community in the UK, a, a Baptist minister. He said to me recently, and this guy has achieved so much, he's built hospitals and schools and, again, was awarded this award by Her Majesty in, in, uh, in gratitude for all he's done. And I'll never forget the day when he said to me, Jeff, I've never done anything out of 100% pure motives. That liberated me. It liberated me because there's always mixture in there somewhere. In standing even here tonight, I, I, I want to do my job in terms of unpacking that scripture and hopefully helping us to see what it means and what it doesn't mean. But here's the truth. I don't want to look stupid either. Say, so, well, you haven't really succeeded in that particular manner. There are always mixed motives, but check your ambitions. James 3, 16 says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Be careful 
about selfish ambition. Ambition. Well, the last thing before we, we break bread is simply this. Know that life is seasonal. Know that life is seasonal. As life unfolds, there are different seasons for the expressions of different gifts. Peter walked on water to Jesus, but there was another occasion later on in John 21, back in Galilee, where Peter didn't walk on water to get to Jesus. He walked through it. He jumped out of the boat and waded through the waves. Simply because we've functioned in an area of talent and service now doesn't mean that that will always be for all time. There are different seasons for the use of our gifts and talents. So whatever happened to, to, uh, to Florence? And I'd like Andrew uh, to come back and, and quietly play as we prepare to break bread together. Well, one day... Uh, Florence found out the truth about Florence. Uh, following that Carnegie Hall event, uh, the New York Sun theater and music critic was scathing, and he printed in the newspaper that she could sing everything but notes. And she was devastated, and a few days later, she suffered a heart attack, and she died within a month. Heartbroken, at the revelation that she couldn't do everything she thought she could do. Maybe if someone had loved her enough to tell her the truth, she might have lived longer and happier. It's a much misused verse in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is saying from house arrest... In the changing circumstances of life, God will give me strength for it. He's not saying, I believe I can fly. He's not saying, I can do anything I dream. Rather, he's saying, whatever I go through, Jesus will be there with me. It was true for him then. And it remains true for every one of us tonight. That's why we come and we share bread and the cup. Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. Giving us not just words, but the drama of a meal and then the sacrifice of a cross to express his commitment and sacrifice for us. And then he said, this is my blood shed for you, for us, broken people still under construction, still messing up, still falling over our own feet, stumbling along sometimes. Jesus said, this is my blood shed for you. So I invite you to stand with me if you're able. Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then I just invite you to go to the table and partake in the bread and the cup. We're not going to take it all together. You can stand there at the table and take it. You can bring it back to your seat, and uh, then we'll sing a song of worship to conclude. Father, we thank you because you have shaped us and made us and you are faithful to us. 
this room is loaded full of people and you've invested purpose into their lives, into our lives, various gifts and talents that we can utilize. Show us what we can do. Show us what we can't do. And save us from the folly of just thinking that if we can dream it, we can do it. We want to live in your dream, in your purposes, and to your agenda. So we thank you for bread. We thank you for the cup. And as we take these emblems into our bodies now, we are so grateful to you. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.